As much as COVID lockdown is threatening our businesses, I think that post-COVID will be even more dangerous for restaurant operators. Once we reopen, we will not be realizing if we have to pay the exact expenses that we had to pre-COVID, we're going to now have bigger losses than if we were closed. Welcome to The Profitable Table, fed by Woolco Foods, the nation's first podcast devoted to the business and lifestyle of the hospitality industry. Now, here's your host, Woolco Foods CEO, Stephen Toberoff. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Profitable Table. I'm your host, Stephen Toberoff, CEO of Woolco Foods. And today I have a very special guest that I've been looking forward to speaking with for a long time. It is Remy Laba. He's the co-founder of the world-famous Bagatelle Group. They have 14 locations globally. Uh, the Instagram account is Remy Laba, and the other Instagram account is Bagatelle Official. And for those of you who have been in New York and other world cities, you're very familiar with it. So let me just start by saying, Remy, thank you for taking the time to come in and speak with me. Well, thank you for having me. It's an honor. So, Remy, before we jump into what we're going to discuss today, and there's so much to discuss that's going on, if you wouldn't mind just sharing a little bit about yourself and, and how you got into the restaurant business and, and Bagatelle, and, and just give us some background. Absolutely. Well, I wasn't destined at all for the restaurant business or the hospitality industry. I graduated from business school in France and came to the U.S. when I was uh, 22 years old in 1998 to work for a company that uh, everyone knows, Pernod Ricard, which is a uh, liquor spirits uh, uh, company. And I was more meant to have a career in, uh, in consumer goods and CPGs and so on. And uh, however, I, on, my, on the personal side of things, I always loved food, loved going out, people, uh, you know, a good, a, a good, healthy, fun environment and whatnot. And I guess that uh, life did things well. That caught up to me. I uh, by becoming a very regular client in, in different restaurants in the city, specifically uh, Bel Bouquet or Charlou or Paris Side, for the ones who know it. I came across and met my uh, my other co-founder, Emmer Clemente, uh, who was a restaurateur. He uh, was working in the restaurant space. I was working in the corporate things. But you know, we were young and. Loved New York, wanted to have a bit of fun, and we decided to uh, take our networks together and know how and throw some parties and some nightclubs for fun for our friends and whatnot. And uh, these became very successful. And what was fun slowly and surely over the years became a, uh, a, a business. And but because we weren't necessarily night nightlife fans or nightlife professionals we quickly shifted to a desire of going into the restaurant business. And uh, 2008, we opened our first restaurant, Bagatelle, which was part of a larger project that we had, was what I call the first one-stop shop in hospitality in the city, where we had nightclub Kiss and Fly, Lounge RDV, that stood for Rendezvous, and the restaurant Bagatelle. And obviously, 2008 was the year that uh, the big uh, crisis, uh, uh, which now doesn't seem so big after living through coronavirus, <laughs> but uh, the, the subprime crisis. And we, uh, uh, and through that crisis, we actually 
exploded and do, did super well, which, uh, uh, you know, sort of made a lot of people on the global scale aware about Bagatelle. And we, uh, from that springboard, uh, in 2011, three years later, we started developing our business and uh, uh, to what it is today, 14 locations globally, uh, beach clubs, uh, mountaintop restaurants, urban restaurants, uh, and so on. And um, and very happy to be with you today to share uh, uh, my experience and my uh, and my views on what's going on. Well, the story is fascinating, and there's so much there that under normal circumstances I would delve into because so much of what you've done exceptionally well, whether it's scaling from one concept to multiple locations or building a brand or building an international brand, these are the subjects. And maybe we will get into it at the end of the interview, but as you said quite rightly, we're in a very unique and challenging situation now and i want to get your thoughts on it because there are a number of restaurants and hotels and hospitality facilities that are facing challenges now and you're somebody that's going to shed insight into this because i know that you've been working on a number of fronts so the first question i have is i know that there's been a movement afoot among other ideas that are in the uh, in the marketplace of ideas right now to have insurance companies honor their business interruption insurance. And I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing with us, Remy, your thoughts on that, as well as what you think needs to be done from the policy standpoint to help the independent restaurants and others in the hospitality space. Because that's really the challenge right now. There's thousands and thousands of restaurants that have either shuttered or that are operating at 10 or 15% capacity what needs to be done for us to bridge the gap from where we are now to where we ideally want to get in the future? That's a very good question, and it's a, uh, it's a very wide subject, uh, and there's obviously no perfect answer to it. It is you know, a very difficult situation for most operators today, whether uh, here in New York or in the U.S. or uh, even globally where we have other locations. The one thing I will say is that the biggest challenge that restaurant operators are facing today in this situation is first and foremost, their risk when it comes to their leases. So therefore, the relationship to their landlords. If you are not generating any income from your activity, you obviously are not able to face your um, most large expense. And that is, in every single one of the cases, your rent. Therefore, having a potential deal with your landlord becomes paramount to your potential survival. Now, obviously, to have a proper solution, a proper answer to this particular question, you cannot have a narrow view from just a restaurateur perspective. For it to work, you've got to be able to look at the larger precise view where you've got to take into consideration the landlord's obligations that are most important to the to, to, to the solution, but also realize that every one of them have unique situations from the landlord that owns his buildings outright, that doesn't have any financial obligations to institution other than, you know, his property taxes to the state it is. The one that has, you know, a, a mortgage that needs to pay monthly from the one that has a securitized loan with ground ground leases and, and is extremely 
dependent on uh, on his uh, flow of income to be able to face his obligation and have very little recourse if he misses payment to the overleveraged you know real estate sharks as i call them that love to make income of people's hard work sitting on their couches and basically basically leeching off of them so i think that every one of those landlords are very specific the only way that you get a real solution on that biggest of problem which is rent you need to have a moratorium that is federally led and also sanctioned by the the different states in our case new york state where the rents are frozen mortgage are frozen and state and federal subsidizes the financial institutions with one and a half point to one point of interest to cover their costs so that everyone can start again at the end of COVID or I would say even more 90 days after the end of COVID so that we have a chance to go back to a normal activity to be in a net zero situation. That's the ideal world. It's an excellent idea from a policy standpoint. And I know you've been involved with policymakers and I want to dive into that. But one of the things that I'm thinking about, and I had done this and I had discussed this in an earlier podcast episode because the cost of rent has been a tremendous headwind for restaurants for quite some time in New York and elsewhere. And at this moment in time, as you say, you have a number of restaurants that are not operating or they're operating at a minimal capacity. My thinking is, and I'd love to know your thoughts, would be the following. Regardless of what may or may not come from the government at the state, local, or federal level, I always believe when you have people that you owe money to, whether it's your vendors, your landlord, anybody, it's always good to at least have a conversation because a lot of times what people do when they're in a situation is they don't pick up the phone, the creditor gets worried, and it exacerbates a problem that could be nullified. What I would suggest restaurateurs do at this moment in time is unless they have absolute certainty that they have a very acrimonious relationship, now might not be a bad time to get on the phone and start a conversation with your landlord and let them know what's going on. Landlords, for the first time in many years, are in the weakest position they've been relative to their tenants. Because at the end of the day, they need, not all of them, you're correct, Remy, but a lot of them need that income. And if they evict the restaurant, if they can even get into court, they're going to have to find another tenant. And that's not going to be so easy. So now might not be a bad time to at least have a conversation. Hey, we're here. We're doing takeout and delivery. Or, hey, we're here. We applied for the PPP loan. Start that dialogue now because you never know what could come out of it. I don't say go into it blind, have a plan, but at least begin the dialogue. What do you think about that? So, look, I think that in an ideal world, this is how things would happen. But again, because... Every landlord has a different personality, a different outlook on life or different needs. What can be a great idea can actually be a really bad one. Uh, I'll give you a perfect example. We're part of this uh, restaurant network uh, that was created by uh, Stephen Cavalli, which a lot of us large New York uh, operators are part of. And we see all types of testimonies when it comes to conversations with landlords. We've got people that have had responses that were extremely harsh. Well, you got to pay your rent. You're not paying. I'm putting you, I'm giving, I'm, I'm adding penalties that are, you know, hard to swallow on your rent. And no matter what, that I, I cannot evict you for 90 days, but at 91 days, I'm starting an eviction proceeding. And that's real situation. I'm not, you know, this is not something I'm making up. This is actually something that's happening right now for, for some of our colleagues. Some others have great relation, great responses from their landlords that are 
yes, we're going to work with you and, uh, you know, we don't expect you to pay rent. Uh, and let's revisit this uh, uh, when we have more clarity. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you get any kinds of support, if you're, if, as you mentioned earlier, insurance, if the insurance was to kick in and we're getting business interruption, or uh, if the loans that you're given can be forgiven, forgiven if you pay rent, then, you know, please be, you know, conscious that we also need that money. So look, it goes, it goes really both ways. In my personal case, right, I have different landlords and different, different situations. One of my landlords has the worst possible situation when, uh, when it comes to his, uh, to his uh, property. He's got a ground lessor. He's got a lender. He's got a securitized loan. He's under a lot of pressure. I can't ignore the situation he's in if I want to have a viable solution. So we do talk. And we have a very friendly relationship also because we've got a 15-year outlook and we are a strategic partner. He's a hotel owner, a strategic partner to his overall success. However, as much as he would like to tell me, listen, I don't need your rent right now. He's telling me that he knows that I'm not going to, that he doesn't expect me to pay rent in April or May and stuff. However, he needs to still send me notices or communication in which he's still expecting his rent because in that case, he's not necessarily in control. His lender can step in, his ground lender can step in and can then take his property away. So, you know, in that case, I have a great relationship with my landlord, but he's, his hands in, are, are tied. So in case someone comes and forgives him or gives him some sort of moratorium, his hands are tied. My other landlord, however, uh, has a lot more flexibility. I've reached out to them three times. Every time the conversation was somewhat cordial, although at one point they said, well, you know, uh, uh, if you can't pay, uh, just turning the keys. I'm like, are you serious? Me turning the keys? Never. Well, so, you know, but well, so that was a very different question. And then, you know, they said that we were going to speak and every time he said he was going to call me, never did. So my, per- my per- personal point of view is that it's too early to talk with your landlords today. You know, you have to do what you need to do to survive. And that is right now, manage your cash flow. And the simple concept of paying someone for the use of a, of a building, of a retail store that you can't do anything with is ludicrous. And to, un, to, to un, the, the simple concept of someone making the exact same make, income that he was making pre-COVID while you're about to lose your business is not acceptable. So I believe that once the sanitary crisis slows down, that once the government at state or federal level has a handle on the virus, that the curse flattens and stuff, that they will slowly address other large issues when it comes to the economy. President Trump, whether we're fans or not of him, uh, yesterday announced the task force for reopening the economy and was naming everyone that would participate. As far as the restaurants are concerned, the people that he has invited to the table, Wolfgang Puck, Daniel Boulou, John George, and so on, are all facing the same, same issues as we are. And they'll be a great voice for us. You were mentioning earlier about the insurance situation, which is a huge solution, potential solution, if the federal government was to force the insurers that have $822 billion in reserve for the restaurant industry uh, in such a, a case to pay us our BI uh, or business interruption claims, and the government was to come and also participate in that, 
obviously, we would no longer have to worry about paying our employees. We would not need loans. We would not need unemployment. And we would have no issues paying our rents. And there is a large coalition that's around insurance that's been created called We Are Big, W-E-R-B-I-G.org, led by a very successful attorney who's handled claims for Hurricane Katrina that's handling our claim, who's doing it pro bono, by the way, which is important to know. And this was started by, you know, Thomas Keller, Wolf Gompok, and uh, Danielle and whatnot. So having those guys at the table with President Trump is going to hopefully move the needle and get some points across. You know what I would say, Remy, just very briefly, with respect to federal policy, something that I've been encouraged by, and, and we've fortunately been the recipient of the, um, we, we filed for the PPP loan and we were able to get it. And I think there's a lot of positives and negatives with that. But with respect to federal policy, President Trump has been speaking often and frequently about the restaurant industry, which is encouraging. And in addition, he put forth one idea that I was very encouraged by, and Governor Cuomo put forth one idea. You know, the president referred to the notion of reinstating full deductibility for dining out, which I think would be very, very helpful once things stabilize. Because, again, anything we can do to encourage economic activity without having to run the printing presses is a good thing. And I also have heard from Governor Cuomo and Speaker Pelosi about lifting the limit on the salt tax, which would be very helpful, again, for New York City, California, and other urban environments, because people there would get a dramatic reinstatement of a, of a substantial deduction. And again, you don't have to run the printing presses to do it. You're encouraging behavior using the policy. And all of the behavior that's being encouraged or incentivized is geared towards productive members of society. So I just wanted to put that out there. I'm not, I'm not a political person either, but I am encouraged what I'm hearing. You are correct that it's a, that these are potentially good measures, but these measures are only good for the people that have survived COVID. Okay, and in that premise alone is what disturbs me. Understood. A lot of restaurants will close if the government doesn't step step in and gets involved in two major subjects. One rent freeze and mortgage freeze and have that moratorium put in play, number one. Second, the uh, business interruption claims. If with those two simple decisions, they come and support the industry in, w- in which you know we thrive, the restaurant industry, we will be there at the end of COVID and we will be able to start over. Now, Bear in mind, please, that's also very important, that as much as COVID lockdown is dangerous and threatening our businesses, I think that post-COVID, at least 90 days to six months that will follow COVID lockdown, will be even more dangerous for restaurant operators because it is very likely that we will reopen with restrictions, that our occupancy will be cut in half, to a third, who knows, that we will need to maintain distancing until a vaccine is available, that we might have to serve clients with masks and gloves and so on. And therefore, once we reopen in that, in, in that fashion, we will not be realizing revenues anywhere close of what was pre-COVID. Therefore, if we have to pay the exact same expenses that we had to do to pre-COVID, we're going to now have bigger losses than if we were closed. And that will accelerate 
the death of restaurants. So it's it's a very complex issue, but business interruption and rent freeze is the first step to saving the industry. And that is extremely important. You know, France, in Europe, France has done it. And right now we have operations in France. And I can say that out of all the countries we operate, the measures that they've taken have been the most helpful to our industry. And I certainly do believe that we need as a country to be looking at what's being done successfully abroad to sort of create a sense of safety or at least care. I mean, I can tell you that right now, all my restaurant colleagues were all feeling abandoned, are all feeling hopeless. They went from hope to and unity amongst ourselves to you know, everyone has its own because every single landlord is 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 sort of behaving, you know, in a different way. We try to come up with a common ask to to landlords, hoping that they would that that would resonate. Truth is, those the landlords don't care. They 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 want what they want, and uh, and they're not really caring about another landlord and what he's getting. So if there's no f- policy in place, it's going to be difficult, and only the fittest will survive. And the only ones that have no debt that have deep pockets will be able to uh, to be there on the other side of the tunnel. That's the sad reality. Listen, just a perfect indication of this is that there's already restaurant groups out there hunting for opportunities to acquire other businesses and benefit from this crisis. So that tells you there's we've already know we already know restaurateurs that have given their keys because they do not believe the landlords will play ball. They do not believe the government will come and help us and help them. And therefore, they'd rather turn keys now so that and they, they, they're not backed in rent. They, they can activate their good guy guarantee clause and not be pursued for everything they have. I mean, it's that's the sad reality. No, understood. What I would say is a, is a couple of things. And, and then I'd like to get into what the probability is of these things occurring. But one, I agree with you. It's encouraging that the reopening task force or whatever it's called is including those independent people. And two, I completely agree with everything you're saying. And I think it would be absolutely phenomenal to do a collective response and people should. But I still don't want to discount the opportunity that may exist for certain restaurateurs to engage at this juncture to better position themselves coming out of this to the extent that they can. Because at the end of the day, I'm I'm in no position to give legal advice, although I'm a retired attorney. It's not going to be so easy to get into court right now, and it's not going to be so easy to effectuate any type of evictions. And I think that while it's very difficult to calibrate the, the, the dynamics of power between the tenant and the landlord at this point, and you're right, it's a much... Uh, it's a highly variable scale of things. Again, if you're a restaurant and you do have a good relationship with your landlord, and you always have, I believe you should call them, let them know what's going on. One of the things that I discussed in an earlier podcast, and again, it's maybe premature to do this, maybe it isn't, because I think that when this when this thing opens up, Remy, just imagine the hit that's going to occur to retail. Just imagine the hit that's going to occur to a lot of industries. So I understand right now that up for the past 10 years, we've been swimming in a world of liquidity and valuations haven't mattered. And maybe we'll go back to that world depending upon how much they run the printing presses. But at some point, either these ground level spaces are going to be filled up or they're not. And if they're not, not only is the entire commercial real estate complex of Manhattan, Brooklyn, 
in jeopardy of a collapse. That would lead to a that would lead to a financial collapse, and it would also lead potentially to a mass emigration from New York. Because why are people spending a fortune to live in New York if they can't avail themselves of the of the theater, of restaurants, of nightlife? And I'm not trying to be frightening or pessimistic here because I'm actually cautiously optimistic. But I guess the point that I'm trying to make is everyone has an incentive to play ball here, and very few landlords they can talk as tough as they want. Very few landlords are in a position right now to do much of anything other than talk. That's just the reality of what, what's going on in the court system with COVID. Yeah, I think you're making a very good point on that. The only thing is, you know, like my advice would be the listen. Conversation never hurts, right? You can you can have a conversation with the right with person. Landlord. I mean, I agree with yeah. you too. I'm a very cautious person. If you know that your landlord's contentious, and you know that whatever you say is going to be interpreted as weakness or is something that is not going to work to your advantage, don't call them. I'm only no, speaking even, to your No, but even so, look, look I, think, I think having a conversation with your language is, is, is a bad guy or a good guy doesn't hurt. Now, what I would not do, what I would advise anyone not to do is to negotiate at this point. Why? Because of all the points you just made. Today, a landlord who has a good tenant, if he's going to evict him on the basis that he couldn't pay his rent during a pandemic crisis, I don't think he's going to get a lot of sympathy from courts, number one. And second, before he gets to a judge, if every landlord pursues a lawsuit, uh, this court system will be completely filled with a huge line and and it will take a long time for them to to process all of those. So that's number one. Second, you're right. Before COVID, we were already in a retail crisis led by the success of all online shopping and whatnot. So there's a lot of store, the storefronts that are empty in the city. So the ones that have tenants are, are quite fortunate. On top of it, most of us that are uh, paying rent right now in New York are paying high rents, which I don't think those high rents will be able to stand for new tenants post-COVID because the economy will be in shambles and there's no telling. And therefore, that plays in favor of tenants more than in landlords. But also, I think that a key element is the cost of getting the new tenant in for a landlord. First, you've got to go to market. That takes time. You've got to pay a broker. That's expensive, especially in commercial real estate. Then you have to give them TI, tenant improvement dollars, for them to you know, build the place or you know, and participate into that. Then you've got to give them free rent. So landlords are not in a position in strength, in my opinion. And, I, and that's the reason why I advise potentially talking to your landlords, but not negotiating with them. Because why would you negotiate against yourself? I agree. When possibly in a week or two or three or four, because we're in a long-term game here. We're, this, is not, this is not ending it May 1st like Trump is suggesting it may, at least not for our industry. Therefore, you know, it's very possible that in the weeks to come, some announcements and some policies will be announced. And once you have a night, a much clearer idea of what those policies might be, then you go to the ta- you go to the negotiation table. I think today is too early. There's not enough clarity, too much uncertainty. And because of that, some landlords are abusing this uncertainty, the fear that maybe an independent restaurant tours to muscle them into either giving their keys back or paying their rent or whatever. So, you know, I think that it's important. No, that's to a not great point. Let, yeah. And I think it's very important to not be bullied and to say, you know what? 
I've got no incentive. I'm, I can't pay you. That's the reality of it. And I'm not going to make you whole when I'm losing my shirt. You either lose with me and win with me or, you know, screw you. And, and, and sorry for my vulgarity, but that's pretty much no, the no, position. No, 100%. And I agree with you. And I think for those people out there that are frightened, never make a decision out of fear. Because as Remy says, and as I'm saying, this is a very fluid situation. And we don't know what's going to happen. And the other thing you have to recognize, which Remy said and which is obvious, the ability to actually effectuate legal action at this moment in time is incredibly constrained. And if there were to be a mass volume of foreclosures or a mass amount of litigation, it would literally take years to go through the court system. I can tell you, you know, we have phenomenal restaurants, but every now and again, we've had to bring legal action against somebody because they just don't pay. And it happens in the restaurant industry. And it takes, if you, if you go all the way through the court system, when the court system's functioning, you're looking at close to a year. So I, I think we, I think we've been saying this enough, but I think the most important takeaway is if you're listening, don't act out of fear and don't make a rash decision. And I agree completely with you, Remy. Now is not the time to negotiate. And by the way, I do have some restaurants that are doing, believe it or not, extremely well. And I congratulate them with the takeout and delivery. They are well uh, financed. They have cash. On the other side of this, there are going to be opportunities that haven't existed for a long time. And I'm not talking about acquiring distressed stuff. I'm talking about real estate opportunities. So again, you wouldn't even want to consider doing that now, but something to keep in your mind. Because I saw that in 08 and 09 too, Remy. Yeah. Stephen, another point I think that's also very important on that same subject is that, you know, not only is it not time to negotiate for the current situation, but I also think that a key element of survival for uh, for our fellow restaurateurs and, and, and ourselves is that it, there will also be very soon a time to negotiate post-COVID because we've been paying rents that were very high. And I don't think that for the next 18 to 24 months, we're going to go back to pre-COVID revenue. Okay. so. I think that what's happening is also a perfect springboard for every restaurant tours and tenants to go to their landlords and say, by the way, I can't guarantee you the, 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 the base payment on my, on my lease. Or the, and I would like to move for a more dynamic system in which, you know, I don't have too much risk. We share the risk, but there's also upside for you. And that's very simple. That's percentage rent. And, Absolutely. You know, because... A smart landlord will want to accompany his tenant long-term to not be faced with an empty space that will cost him a fortune to fail. And if it takes time to ramp up to new revenues and the, and, and the landlord gets percentage rents and, and a percentage that he's happy with, and look, the industry has industry, the industry has standards when it comes to percentage rent. Six, 8% is pretty much the norm. So even if we went a little higher, 10%, we can live with. But the bottom line is, if you did that, the landlord would support their tenants. They would get proportionate income at a ratio that ensures that the restaurant has a chance to survive. And let's say that revenues ramp up much quicker. Then they also have an upside. They might end up making more money than they did before. But anyhow, I think that it's one thing to negotiate your, your COVID lockdown situation. They're not paying rent. But you also have to you know, realize that you're going to have to negotiate in my opinion, at least a minimum of 90 days to potentially 18 months, 24 months of post-COVID uh, business because 
it's going to take time to rebuild. Not necessarily because people don't want to go out to restaurants, but because there will, we will have restrictions until a vaccine is available. And there's still so much unknown about that virus. We already know that this virus is right now in the Southern Hemisphere, which usually means that it will come back uh, in the winter and hit us again, like the traditional flu. So there's so much unknown yet. We've got to be prepared for that. And our landlords, you know, our landlords are not, and are not just landlords, they're also our partners. They don't make money if we don't make money in the long term. No doubt. I actually mentioned that concept in an earlier podcast as well, because something similar, but not nearly as close, occurred in 08 and 09, the last major financial meltdown. But you're right. This is going to, this could potentially lead to a reimagining of what commercial real estate interaction between landlord and restaurant and landlord and other tenants looks like. And I think you're 100% right. And I think everybody that is doing business now and, and is functioning and is surviving, you're 100% right. You have to be prepared for that renegotiation because I do think it's going to be a massive shift and potentially a very positive shift for the restaurant industry uh, when it occurs in terms of altering the dynamic between the landlord and tenant. A question I have, because I know you are involved with the with the group that is pursuing the uh, business interruption insurance, and I know you've been involved with many of the top restaurateurs in a number of these uh, initiatives. And I know none of us has perfect visibility, but if I understood you correctly, uh, and I'd like you to elaborate, you would believe or, or would you say that there's at least a, better than 50% probability that once Governor Cuomo is past the first and foremost challenge, which is the health crisis, that there is some appetite and some interest and there will be some initiative in doing more to assist the restaurant industry with the challenges that have been presented by COVID? It's a very good question. When it comes to New York and Governor Cuomo, although I've been and, you know, like the entire country, you know, admirative of the way he's led New York State and, and, and faced that crisis. The one thing that uh, I, I have a hard time understanding is that anytime the question was brought to him in his briefings, when it comes to rent, restaurants and whatnot, he ducked, right? He's a guy who's been giving straight answers. And that's the one subject on what he actually didn't give a straight answer. So when it comes to Cuomo, I'm, I, I'm a little bit more fearful that you know, it's not something that he's really prepared to do, mainly because property taxes account for probably a very large part of New York state revenue. So I'm a little bit concerned that there's conflict of interest there. Uh, I'm hopeful that uh, he'll see that and that he will, you know, decide to, you know, put the money towards, you know, hardworking people and, and, and obviously, you know, back to, back to employment. I mean, the restaurant industry is the second largest, if not the largest private sector employer in the country. And therefore, in New York, it has significant value. So he has, he has genuine interest in doing so, so that people can go back to work and consume and whatnot in support of the rest of the economy, especially knowing that the restaurant industry failing will create a domino effect and will create a lot of other business closures. But, you know, I'm a little bit more fearful on Cuomo's conflict of interest because of the income brought by uh, property taxes and therefore landlords. I have a bit more hope when it comes to the, to the federal government because contrary to Cuomo, Trump, and I'll say that, not that it matters, but I'm not a fan, so I'm not praising him, but 
Trump, to the contrary, has been pretty voiceful, uh, voice first about the restaurant industry. He's acknowledged us. He's spoken about our industry. In the task force that he named yesterday, he's bringing some really key people to the table. And there's a little less conflict of interest there, at least on the on the rent and uh, mortgage moratoriums that we, we may be seeking. So I'm hoping that there, there will be some real uh, movement. When it comes to business interruption, huh, that's a very difficult one. So at a local level, we've heard that some bills were being prepared by Congress, some Congress, uh, local Congress people to enforce insurance to have them pay those business interruptions. But these are bills that will be fought for a long time in insurance. So it's going to take time, and I'm not sure that that will be enough. At a federal level, we all know that insurers are key to the economy because usually when when a country goes and borrows money, uh, they borrow money from often insurance. Insurance are much more powerful than banks. So it's it's always David against Goliath in terms of battle, but hopefully, listen, hopefully we'll get there. I, I, 50-50 for me is, is being optimistic, and I like to be optimistic. Right now, I'm more in a position where I'm trying to not guess, and I'm just listening to every word and, and hoping for the best. But it would be preposterous to, uh, to, to, to give you a, a percentage. Understood. I'm actually very cautiously pessimistic at this point, to be honest, where for me to say that's hard because I'm I'm genuinely very optimistic, but I'm I'm getting mixed messages in my opinion. Let's see what Trump does. Well, I mean, I would have to say the following. I think with respect to the president, I, I agree with you. I think he's been as good as you can be for this industry in a number of ways. One, he's been mentioning it uh, all the time, and and it's been on his radar. Two, the people he assigned to his task force, and three, the fact of the matter is, with respect to business interruption. The only way that that's going to happen is if Trump and Cuomo and or Cuomo and or other governors are able to successfully, for lack of a better word, bully the insurance companies into do it, or it'll be litigated, and that would be litigated up to the Supreme Court. Yeah. So I think we've fleshed out a lot of the... Well, there's one more thing I'd like to say to you, uh, I think, on that subject, you know, that will also shed light on on, on why I'm a little bit more fearful of, of New York State and Cuomo. If we looked at the way Cuomo has treated the restaurant industry in the past with the past policies, with namely the, uh, you know, the minimum wage raise to $15 an hour or, or 10 for, for, for uh, tipped employees, uh, which has been a killer for the restaurant, for, for the restaurant industry, the way the, 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 the governor has not intervened with the terrible Industrious lawsuits like wage and hour brought in by—I don't call them law firms because to me they're—they're—they're just—it's just just a racket. Um, You know, there's so many things that the governor uh, could have done or hasn't done to support the restaurant industry, and or actually have policies that were a bit more, a bit smarter, I would say, to to support the industry. You know, you—you know, the restaurant industry goes from QSRs, fast food industry, all the way to fine dining, and an employee that gets fifteen dollars at McDonald's is very different from someone who's getting bigger. There's just a little bit of discrepancy. So in my opinion, there's not a great track record of New York State supporting the restaurant industry that will that indicates that it will make the right decisions for us. I'm hoping that I'm wrong, but that's my analysis. I've got much more hope on the on the federal side. And that's where actually I'm 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 sort of you know putting my bets on. 
I agree with you, and I also have much more hope because I think that President Trump coming from the world of business and, and having a hospitality industry of his own, he understands it. I think a lot of time, certain elected officials who have, in the case of Andrew Cuomo, I don't think he's ever met a payroll or had a private sector job. It's very easy for them to make decisions which seem good, but you're correct. Uh, you, you mentioned the uh, minimum wage and the tip workers. All he did was create enormous incentives for restaurants who would say normally, like in one of your, I'm not even, any restaurant where you have a waiter or, or a waitress who makes a fortune in tips, they don't need to make $10 an hour because they're not working for that. They're working for the tips. Now, if you impose a higher cost structure on a restaurant, they have every incentive to cut staff to the bone, have every table with a tablet. Again, it's not going to work in fine dining. It works in the airport just fine. So again, I don't want to get off. But more than time. an incentive, Stephen. Oh. More than an incentive, they have. We have no choice then to cutting staff. Right, hundred percent. It's not that it's an incentive. We just have no choice because now our costs skyrocketed twenty percent a year for three years in a row, year to year on payroll. It's crazy. You're you're hundred percent. The restaurant industry has been horribly mistreated by public policy in New York for the past several years, and and I agree with you. It's far better to have comfort in the federal government, where at least I think there's an understanding of the challenges that job creators are facing. I will, I, I will say this also, and this would lead us to the next point, would be the following. The state cannot print money. The New York state does not have the ability to print money, only the federal government can. And the states cannot go bankrupt under our constitution. And I think a lot of these states are now going to have to come to grips with the reality that if they don't generate economic activity, they're going to have an absolute inability to, to function and run. And so hopefully that will change the decisions that are being made over time. Again, this is a very extreme circumstance, but I would say that Governor Cuomo and, and Governor Murphy in New Jersey and elsewhere, they're looking at their state budgets, which were in shambles, particularly New Jersey, Illinois, before this. It's, uh, it's got to be frightening. So Let's, you know, it, it's a tough time. So, but let's talk about this, Remy, because I'd like to know your thoughts on this. So we understand what the government issues are. We'd like to see the policy response. We've talked about landlords. One of the things I'd like your thoughts on, because you have built an international brand and you've scaled your business. There are a number of restaurants that, that I'm doing business with currently. And, and I'm encouraged to say that more restaurants are opening up for takeout and delivery every week. Uh, there's probably some that are closing too, but just from my limited vantage point, I'm seeing sales and activity go up incrementally. Actually, last week, it was almost dramatically week over week. And what suggestions would you give these restaurateurs to maximize their ability to transact business, whether it's in takeout, delivery, selling cocktails, which I mean, what would you suggest they do in terms of utilizing social media, community outreach? How would you approach it from their perspective to make the most out of the limited opportunity that they're looking to leverage? It's a good question. I mean, look, it's a, it's a, it's my answer is pretty precious because it's not going to come from my own experience as we've decided to not do delivery during COVID for many reasons, mainly because we do not believe that having people in a kitchen uh, doing high volume delivery will provide a safe environment for them. Therefore, 
we decided not to expose our team and not do delivery. On top of it, we weren't doing delivery before, so we were really stepping in uncharted territories and we prioritized the safety of our employees. Now, for the ones that... Understood. And actually, and actually, let me just expand the question out a little bit more. Whether or not you're doing takeout and delivery, let's assume it's a restaurant that's not doing it and ones that are, but you are planning to reopen. How do you keep the restaurant out there in the public mind and continue to enhance the brand or, or just communicate with the public whether you're open or not? Yeah, yeah. So, so to your first question, you know, what I would say to people that do delivery and stuff, I mean, I've, I've, uh, you know, I've been spending my time looking at what uh, people have doing, been doing out there because let me tell you, there's some very creative people and very smart people out there. And, um, and I think that, well, there's the traditional delivery business as we knew it pre-COVID that, uh, you know, obviously works. You put your name out there, your customers uh, order their favorite foods and have that at home. And uh, it, it's a way for them to, to keep someone of their routine. So that's, that's you know, the most common avenue. But I've also seen great, great, a great idea, which is, you know, those restaurants preparing uh, pre-made foods and, and uh, having frozen and then, you know, uh, having people being able to order frozen foods in, in larger quantities or whatever and, and, and store, you, you could buy a week's worth of meals and, that are frozen that you could then, you know, prepare at home uh, easily. So there's, there's been a lot of great ideas out there. And I think that what I would encourage people to do is, you know, um, focus on your operations, one thing, but also look at what your, 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 your fellow restaurateur is doing delivery wise. He might have a great idea that could work for you. And if, if he does, you'll find, you'll find fantastic best in class benchmarking in our industry that could give you great ideas. And that's what I, you know, that's, that's what I would do. And this is what I do because obviously you know, I think that once we reopen, we will start doing the delivery side of our business because I think it's the trend and it's uh, it's important. Uh, so therefore, I'm 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 in a learning curve. But I, I I like the fact that you know, you some of restaurant the restaurant tours deliveries have been addressing the lack of frozen foods, for example, available at at, uh, at uh, if you go to Whole Foods today and you go to the frozen section, there's nothing. There's nothing, and the reason why there's nothing is because people don't want to go to the to to the, the grocery store twice a week or or once a week. They want to be able to stock and and have produce available without exposing themselves to the virus. So therefore, they, they they're privileging frozen foods. So if the restaurants that are able to do that, then that's great. They're they're filling a real need out there for for consumers. Second thing I think is great is I've seen restaurants, you know, actually playing the local grocery store, meaning that they're ordering in bulk from probably people like you and, and letting some of their customers, you know, uh, buy uh, dry pastas or uh, toilet paper or whatever from them directly. So, so all these are great ideas. And I think that I encourage everyone to, to do as much as they can if they have daily business to expend their offering to uh, answer needs that are obviously very specific to that crisis currently that could help them generate more revenue. And for me, frozen or pantry items is, is, is a great way to go. So that's number one. As far as staying alive as a brand during a period of closure, the route we've taken is twofold. What? One, we've decided to you know, use our kitchen for anything that could support our community when it comes to food, uh, meals, and whatnot and on a voluntary basis. We've unfortunately laid off about 200 people in New, York, in New York City, and some of which have very little income, have had a hard time getting through unemployment and one precarious situation. So, you know, we've been able to utilize our kitchen and our team to 
purchased food. We've we've run a, a GoFundMe campaigns that we funded ourselves as well as some of our clients and suppliers have, have participated in. And we've been utilizing that, and we've been also keeping you know our clientele and our supporters informed of those efforts via social media, so that they know on a on a regular basis whether whether money has has been going and applied to. Number one. Second, we've been digging in our memories. You know, we've been doing little memorabilia of, you know, the great times that they spent at our restaurants over the years and brought back like what, you know, the throwback Thursdays or flashback Fridays, if I may say, of, of our, of our restaurant brand and sort of, you know, brought those fun memories back to life and, uh, and so on. We've also done cool initiatives with, uh, for example, we have one of our DJs based out of London, who's uh, created a song for COVID, destined to uh, to destined to uh, generate uh, income aimed to charity, where it's been a collaborative effort. Every single one of our employees, clients, uh, whomever wanted to participate, just had to send a small clip shot from their iPhone of them, you know, of of a of one of their fun moments of quarantine, and oh, and that created the clip. So you know, we're doing a lot of different uh, fun little marketing initiatives that are aimed to bring people together, remember that they're part of a larger community, try to build some feel-good moments, bring back some fun memories, and, and be true to our, 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 the most important value of our brand, which is joie de vivre, which in French uh, means celebrate, you know, the, the, the joy of life. So anything that allows us to remember that life can be celebrated and that once we are out of uh, quarantine and containment that we will all be able to embrace life again together and and celebrate it and that's how we communicate on our social media platforms trying to you know carry that message and uh, and stay alive in people's minds and so on but you know I think that and we also we also do uh, uh, live cooking lessons we basically usually have one of our chefs in his kitchen that is teaching one of our employees how to make a certain dish uh, on Instagram Live or YouTube or whatnot, so, in which our community can dial in. I mean, look, we're, try- we're trying to do a lot of different things to bring people together and, and, uh, and bring you know, useful, joyful, and optimistic content to the community. Well, I think that those are all ideas, and I think that people really enjoy that. And I think one thing that's been very clear to me in this whole process is you can't really watch the news for more than an hour or hear things without people mentioning the restaurant business. So my belief is that there's an enormous love for people to go out and go to restaurants and people love to eat and they love to socialize. And I think that when these restrictions lift, and I agree it's going to be a slow thing and it's going to be a, um, it's going to happen over time. But I definitely believe that, if anything, this experience has taught us that we're social creatures and we like to be with each other and people miss that. And therefore, I believe that at least we can feel confident, at least I'm very confident, that the demand will be there and that the challenge that we all have to get through is one, the economic, or actually two, the economic, one is the health and safety. But once we do that, I believe that the restaurant industry will probably have some of their best quarters ever. Because the desire to do that, go out, socialize, have a cocktail, enjoy, uh, is immense. I think you're absolutely correct with that. The one thing, though, I, 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 I will have to say is that, you know, as much as us restaurateurs and 
our clients are all dying to, you know, we all dying to see our restaurants full and vibrant and uh, a cash register to ring and them to be able to celebrate life with their friends and so on. We also have to be responsible citizens in the sense that, you know, we are going to face a lot of pressure from our customers that are not, you know, they're, they're not, not everyone really cares or, or, or feels, in, some a lot of people feel invincible or not. Or, and when we're going to reopen, it's going to be very important for us restaurant owners to really, you know, be strict on and, and respect the restrictions that are, that, that, that we're given and enforce it to the customer level as long as we can, despite the fact that it's going to hurt our revenue. And despite the fact that we know for, that without a doubt that all our customers will be there lunch, dinner, every day of the week to support us, we're going to have to, you know, bite our lips a little longer and make sure that we enforce uh, those restrictions because the one thing we don't want is one first see a rebound effect and, and more people getting sick, but also be responsible for potential people's death if we don't uh, if we don't comply. So it's going to be it's going to take a lot of self discipline, in my opinion, uh, to to do that and, and, and to hopefully get back to a place where one day uh, soon I hope we'll be able to be at 150 percent of where we were pre COVID because of the of the immense support and immense desire of people to be together again around a great meal, a nice bottle of wine and having bottles of champagne popping. I mean, we all want to get there, but I think to get there, we also all have to understand that discipline and, and, and the care of another uh, uh, and you know, so, so selflessness will be required. I completely agree with you. And I, I think that's actually a great way to end it. And Remy, just do me one favor. When this is over, I want to have you back because there's so much that I want to talk to you about, about how you built the Bagatelle brand and what it's like operating across multiple countries and continents. But I felt that it was very important that we dial in as to what's going on right now. And I really appreciate your insights and I really appreciate the, uh, the time. And I, uh, I look forward to speaking with you soon and I look forward to to sharing that bottle of wine with you at some point in the future. I'll be absolutely happy to come back. And there's one thing I'd like to say to close this is, you know, I think that on the behalf of, of, of most restaurateurs out there, I think that we want, if I, if I can be a voice to our teams that are suffering right now, uh, you know, we, there's not a day that goes by with, without us thinking about them, trying to do everything we can to, to survive so that they have a place to come back to to work uh, when all this is over and that we are all very, very aware that we wouldn't be where we are today without them and that they're not forgotten. And that, you know, and thank you for you, Stephen, for, you know, giving me a voice today to be able to shed light on what I think the industry needs and what, you know, and, and to, to in the end, hopefully be still able to do what we do best and offer uh, jobs to to those people that are really hard workers and and uh, are, are so dedicated. So thank you for that. Oh, my pleasure, Remy. And I, I think that one thing that's come out of this as well, which I'll end with is, this has really shown the best side of the restaurant industry, whether it's the GoFundMe pages, whether it's people that are out there preparing meals for first responders, hospital workers. I think this industry has really done its part and continues to do its part to be really great members of the community. And, um, we just got to get through this, uh, and we will, and get to better days. So, Remy, have an amazing day, and thank you again for your time. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you, Stephen. Have a good day yourself. Speak soon. Bye. 
Well, that was a really fascinating interview with Remy Labah of Bagatelle. And um, I think we covered a lot of very important ground. And I think it's going to be one of several conversations we're going to have in the future on how to navigate this issue. The book I'm going to recommend today is a book that really has given me a great deal of inspiration. I think now is a time when we need to be inspired. I recommended an inspirational book that was inspiring for me the last time. And I'm going to recommend another book right now that gave me a lot of inspiration in my life. And I think that people have a little bit more time. And if you do have time to read, the book is called The Rise of Theodore Roosevelt. And the author's name is Edmund Morris. It's actually the first volume of a trilogy on Theodore Roosevelt. But it's a phenomenal book. And Theodore Roosevelt was a man who overcame tremendous challenges and obstacles and ultimately was a man who completely created himself into the version he wanted to be. And that's something that each of us can do. Uh, It's not easy, um, but it's available. So it's a great read, and it's very inspiring. And if you enjoy it, there's two other volumes that come after it, so that's always nice. So I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on this book if you read it. As always, I love the recommendations that you guys send me. You can reach me at stephen at wokofoods.com, or you can DM me at uh, wokofoods on Instagram. And uh, just have a great day. Stay safe, everybody, and thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to The Profitable Table, fed by Woolco Foods. Please be sure to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And to learn more about Woolco Foods or Stephen Toberoff, please visit us at woolcofoods.net.